Mr Speaker, what we agreed yesterday was not the final deal. It is a draft treaty. It is a draft treaty that means that we will leave the EU in a smooth and orderly way on the 29th of March 2019. Four government ministers have resigned. Her Brexit deal is on the line. Rarely can a Prime Minister have presented a plan for the future of the country with so few of the Cabinet wholeheartedly endorsing it. And am I going to see this through? Yes. Hello and welcome to another episode of Polarised with me, Matthew Taylor. And me, Ian Leslie. You know what? People like me are paid, aren't we, to have insight and foresight and hindsight about these things and to be able to project where we're going to go. I haven't got the foggiest idea. So, uh, a bit of a treat for us today because we thought there was just so much going on in the world that, that, that we would talk about stuff, really. And we're going to start with the particular moment that we're at. A deal has been done. Will it get through Parliament? What's going on? A bit of that. Then we're going to talk about... You are talking about Brexit, aren't you? There, there isn't some other deal. Like the, oh, no, no. That's right. For, for posterity, those people listening to this in 20 years' time wondering what we're talking <laughs> exactly. about. Exactly. Yes, there's this thing called Brexit going on. Now, because of, of what's been going on with Brexit, I have been, of course, looking at my phone every 10 minutes to see you know, whether someone else has resigned, something else has happened. So we're going to talk a bit about that notion of new constant news and our obsession with constantly being finding out what's going on everyone. And that will take us into a bigger conversation, I hope, Ian, which will be about news in general. Fake news is something we've discussed before, and I think we've got a new angle on that that is that's going to be quite interesting. And then if there's time, and if you'll indulge me, I would never normally be allowed to do this, but I, I'm going to offer my grand theory of everything that is going wrong with the world right now. We need to start with with Brexit. And even though people who listen to this programme a week after it's broadcast may know whether we're right or wrong, we we have to talk about this particular moment. I predicted a few weeks ago that Theresa May would get a deal and she would ultimately get it through the House. I'm sticking to my prediction. What do you think? Um, Yeah, but it might... Right, it probably won't be this deal. I, I still think that's a reasonable prediction. I think this is one of those issues, one of those subjects where... Actually, the less you know about it, the more accurate your prediction will be. <laughs> so once you, if you really get into the weeds of this and you get into the detail, it becomes incredibly, you know, confusing. You can see all the different options. None of them seem plausible, yet one of them must happen. It just seems impossible to kind of pass. Actually, if you just have not been really listening to the news and you go, well, you know, they're going to work it out because it's in both sides' interests to work it out. So there'll be a lot of kind of ups and downs and then you know, something will happen. Uh, there'll be a compromise. I, I still think that is a kind of good rule of thumb, good heuristic for, for well, we'll see. But I, I think that's probably still the most likely outcome. So I think that, that's kind of interesting, isn't it, that I agree with that. And I, I think that when historians look back on this period, they will, as it were, if you kind of put the last 18 months, two years in a in, in, into a kind of graph, they'll be able to show a pretty straight red line excuse the phrase, or blue line perhaps I should say, which starts with the referendum and ends up with a very attenuated Brexit emerging at the other end. And they will say, if you look at what was actually going on in the negotiations, that line is a pretty straight line from the very beginning to the very end. And the kind of diplomats and everybody else knew that was where they were going to end up pretty early on. And then what you'll see is look at the news coverage and the speculation and the politics, and that will be all over the graph, shooting up and down... To be quite honest, looking at things right now, I haven't got the foggiest idea what is going to happen in the coming weeks. Is the Prime Minister going to get a deal with the EU? 
don't know. Is she going to be able to get it through the commons? Don't know about that either. I think you might as well get Mr Blobby back on to <laughs> offer his analysis, because frankly I suspect his is now as good as mine. So it's kind of classic wood for the trees. Thing, yeah, it's, it's it? classic. It's it's classic kind of um, climate versus weather, right? So so the long term climate trends are, are pretty unarguable, unless you're kind of you know non non evidence based. If you look out your window, you can say, oh, there's weather's all over the place. You know, there's no no discernible trend because you're just thinking kind of day to day. And it's difficult for us just as human beings to step outside the present moment. Daniel Kahneman, the, the author of Thinking Fast and Slow, and of course you know great. Um, one of the greatest psychologists of our time, when, when he was asked about, you know, what, what's the kind of most important insight that you would like to pass on to people from all of your work? Um, he said something like, the present moment that you're in is not as important as it seems. Right. So there's mm. something you can apply to your, your personal life yes. and also to your, your political. Like what's it, we just have this tendency to over exaggerate the importance of what's going on right now and, and to downplay the importance of, of kind of the, the long term and, and kind of the, the general kind of trends and conditions uh, in our life. So I just think it's a kind of you know, worth bearing in mind for the Brexit debate. Now, isn't it? Isn't it your missus who gave up news for several months? Is that, have I got yeah, that right? she's, So uh, she must be feeling quite smug. I mean, if, she's <laughs> listening, if she was listening to this, she must be feeling quite smug because what we're basically saying is she missed out on absolutely nothing Yeah. because she was able to return to that unbroken line that goes from the referendum to the outcome while we, you and I were getting excited by the undulations it, it, of exactly Jason, right. Jacob Rees-Mogg's latest Sally Forth. You know. and, and I think, you know, that's true. And, and she's not the only one. If you talk to people who go on news fasts of, of, of one sort or another, like, like my wife did, this is kind of the overwhelming thing they say. They, they say two things. One is, I felt a lot happier when I wasn't following the news obsessively every day. Um, and it was quite a nice time. Um, and, and the second thing they say is, when I came back to the news, nothing really seemed to have changed Um, and things change actually a lot less than they seem if you are paying very 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 close attention uh, in the moment so of course you know if you disengage altogether that's not a good idea either but but most of us can probably engage a little less and and actually see things more clearly and and do you think that helps in in the kind of broader span of things which is to say if you look historically certainly since the industrial revolution at every moment people commentators are saying this is the most tumultuous of times the change has never been more intense yeah. uh the the oppo- you know i mean how many times for the last 250 years have people written the equivalent to never have the opportunities or the threats been as great as they are today we always believe that about the moment we're living in absolutely <laughs> and and you know when people say uh technology is changing the world at a faster rate than ever before and then you go well well, what about the railways, you know, or, or, or the, the invention of the car? I mean, the, the world was being absolutely turned upside down throughout, you know, large parts of the 19th and 20th centuries in a way that isn't really true true now. If you walk down a street uh, in, in Britain in 1958 and then you walk down the same street in 1968, uh, you know, perhaps not everywhere in Britain, but, but most of those streets would look very, very different. People would be dressed very differently. They would have, you know... Uh, there'd be a whole kind of different feel, different aesthetic, different kind of cultural um, vibe. And I don't think the same is true of 10 years ago versus now. <laughs> I, yes. I think it'd be actually harder to discern whether or not you're in 19, 2003 or 2013 or 2018. So I think in some ways that the, the pace of cultural change is not as fast as it, as it has been. No, it's, it's funny you should say it because I was watching last night uh, the wonderful uh, 
Ken Burns' documentary about the Vietnam War. And as chance would have it, last night was 1968. And, you know, I don't want to cut the whole premise of this program in because this program is about the fact that the world is uniquely polarised and we're here to comment on it and find some way of saving ourselves from, 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 from all of this. But actually, you know, it's a cakewalk comparison to 1968. I mean, you had revolution on the streets around the world. You had two terrible epochal assassinations. From Dallas, Texas, the flash, apparently official, President Kennedy died at one... Dr. Martin Luther King, the apostle of nonviolence in the civil rights movement, has been shot to death in Memphis, Tennessee. Hundreds of marchers and dozens of policemen were injured. This was later called a police riot. Vietnam War was a complete kind of catastrophe, and it was a kind of proxy world war in the sense that the Chinese and Russians were on one side and the Americans yeah, on the other. riots in Chicago and in Paris. The students were using Molotov cocktails, petrol-filled bottles, which they showered on the police. Police retaliated with tear gas grenades. And it really did feel as though everything was falling apart. Do you think we've just become a bit kind of wussy now? That When you look back on 68, I mean, if these things were happening now, I, I think we'd be having a kind of massive... <laughs> I dread to think. <laughs> total nervous breakdown. Yeah. <laughs> I think Polarised would have to be on air 24 <laughs> hours As a, a national day. service, a public service. <laughs> Calm down, everyone. <laughs> so have we just become a bit fragile? Yeah, I think we... Well, I, I certainly think we, we have taken... Actually, this relates to, to, to the, the piece I wrote about fake news um, for, for the New Statesman a couple of weeks I like ago. it when you refer to your own work. We, yeah, so you say the one. I like to quote, quote myself whenever possible. Um, that, that we build these kind of like stable societies and then we become so used to the fact that they're stable we forget what made them stable in the first place. Um, and, and not only do we get hysterical at the first sign of, of discord but we kind of forgotten how to actually deal with it in a, in a constructive way. And I guess in a sense that the, the, the advent of 24-hour news, the need to constantly have news that there must be something new going on, contributes to this kind of febrile sense of constant change and our inability to stand back and ask whether really big things are changing, which which takes us to uh, a question that we repeatedly discuss, Ian, but I make no uh, apologies because I think it's fascinating, which is this kind of question of news and, and fake news. And, and the piece that I've read recently that I that made me really kind of sit up and want to to to, to share with people was a piece by Thomas Wells, um, writing for the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. And he, he his piece is called "The Problem for Democracies Isn't Fake News, but Pathological Consumerism." And and I think it's a very it's a very beautiful little argument, really. And and I'm quite convinced by it. So what he says is that it, it is a, a accepted truth in economic theory that we can't make judgments about the objective value of anything. So, you know, I'm sitting here, I've got a cappuccino in front of me, you've got an almond croissant in front of you. An economist would say... Not for long. Not for long. Um, There's no basis upon which I can assert that one of those things is more valuable than the other because the value resides entirely in how much you're willing to pay for it and how much I'm willing to pay for it. So value is a revealed preference. That's the phrase that they use. It's not inherent, it's a revealed preference. And if tomorrow diamonds were worth nothing... And, you know, bread was worth uh, a huge amount. Well, that would be how much they were worth. And their their objective nature wouldn't have changed. What he says, what Thomas Wells says, is that's how people think about news. Is they don't think about news in terms of the idea that it has some objective quality 
but they see it simply as a value proposition. And, you know, if I like my article and you like your article, the question is simply who gets the most clicks? That is the arbiter of what is valuable in news, not truth. Now, I think that's got a, a real power to it. And it's really problematic because if we do live in a world that says news is only the, – the quality of news is determined entirely by its re, the revealed preference of people's clicks, then truth is finished. The other kind of implication of it, um, and which I think is correct, is that it, it means that news organisations aren't competing with other news organisations. They're, they're, they're competing with videos of, of cats and, and, and three-year-olds falling into puddles. Well, we don't mind. Now, in that area, we don't mind the fact that you prefer kittens and I prefer balloons. That's yeah. fine. But the problem is we carry that sensibility that over to whether or not you yeah. believe in Trump and I believe in you know Clinton or whatever. You know, and that to me makes actually more sense than the idea that that people are incredibly polarised about politics and and therefore they only you know read what their side says and so on. Of course, there's there's something to that, but I don't think it's the, the deeper problem. The deeper problem is I think closer to what Thomas Wells is arguing, which is that. Um, news has just become one other form of, of consumer entertainment among many others. Um, and when it comes to consumer ent- entertainment, yeah, exactly. You're not asking, like, is this objectively better than anything else? You're just thinking, is this more fun than anything else? Uh, does this make me weep, cry, you know, w- w- um, smile, laugh, whatever it is, in, in a pleasurable way? posted this picture yesterday morning with the quote, sanctions are coming. The picture and the text are a knockoff of HBO's Game of Thrones and its slogan, winter is coming. Now, in response, HBO tweeted, how do you say trademark misuse in Dothraki? There was a moment, I just want to share this with you, there was a moment, where, and I just read that piece, and there was something else that really resonated with it. I went to a, friend, a friend's house. He told me the previous night he'd been watching The Hobbit uh, with his son and, um, you know, we were just talking about that. Uh, and what occurred to me was the, the importance of fantasy in our culture, you know, The Hobbit or Game of Thrones and all the rings, but also, you know, in a huge proportion of the games people play, online games mm-hmm. and all that is around fantasy. And I was thinking about the relationship between fantasy and myth and drawing a parallel with this Thomas Wells's notion between the relationship between consumer goods and objective truth. Because, of course, the, the, the notion of fantasy plays upon our desire, our desire for myth, our desire for the idea that there are mysterious forces in the world and all of that. But, of course, before the Enlightenment, we didn't choose our myths. We believed our myths. These gods lived in our lives. They were part of the warp and weft of our day-to-day life. They guided our our behavior. They helped us understand the world. Now, of course, we live in a world where we don't believe in myths, we, but we do believe in fantasy, and we just choose whatever fantasy we, we, we like. Is that the same thing, do you think, as, as what Wells is describing in terms of choosing the news you like rather than having some sense of a news that exists beyond you, which you have no choice but to confront? From what you're saying, so as I understand, fantasy is a kind of individualized, consumerized version of myth. So, yes, so exactly. in fantasy, yeah, you are literally allowed to choose your own fantasy, or you, you or you join a group that has its own own fantasy, and you kind of explore it in your in your own fashion. Myths are things that are, by definition, everybody buys into, and everyone agrees. And of course. In that sense, religion is is also you know the most powerful form of myth of all. Right, it's the most kind of, and and a lot of the the debate about what's going on in our politics and and our culture today 
leaves out those questions, particularly about religion. Like very few people talk about the decline of of organized religion as being central to the kind of mm-hmm. atomization, polarization. Of course, you know, various archbishops talk about it. And perhaps because they are archbishops, they, they, they don't get listened to. But whilst there isn't an easy remedy to do that, because you can't just say, well, everybody must be religious. I do think you have to recognize that the lack of uh, kind of binding stories that, that, that bind people together who are, who are otherwise kind of think and feel different things is, is underlies our kind of current Malaise. Yeah, and I, 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 I think that's absolutely right. There is a, I think, I can't remember who's the phrase, but there is a religion-shaped hole in our kind of social fabric. Um, and, you know, we, we like to, those of us who don't aren't people of faith, we like to imagine that something else can fill that religion-shaped hole. But it's not absolutely clear to me what, or, or perhaps the things that are most likely to fill that are things that we should be worried about, which is kind of messianic politics, for example. Well, or, or they are, as you say, the, the equivalent of fantasy, which is shopping. You know, a number of times I've heard this analogy that the shopping malls of today or the supermarkets are, are the churches of today. And of course, these things come together absolutely at this time of year. Hello, beautiful people. It's Jamie, and welcome back to my channel. Today, we have one of the best videos of all time. We have the John Lewis Christmas advert reaction review video. The John Lewis Christmas advert is due to come out any day now. Right. Right. Are we going to watch this? I'm very excited because John Lewis adverts are always the highlight of Christmas for me. That's really great, isn't it? What I love about it is that it's not about a product that you can buy in store. It's back to doing Christmas. I think it was the message more than anything. Yeah. Good ones, but yeah. you know who I really like? No. Sainsbury's. I like the Astor one. It's fascinating, the, 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 the interest we have in Christmas advertising. And it's almost become that the Christmas advert thing. It's almost like we, we now expect these Christmas adverts, not just to flog us things, but we are measuring them by the degree to which they play some kind of socially cohesive role. You know, are, are these adverts really ones that pull us all together? We're all going to watch. And one sense is that the advertisers now feel that a really great Christmas advert mustn't just be about selling mince pies. It has to be a really powerful kind of value statement. Now, what's going on there? Well, uh, you know, brands have always played a, a role in kind of coordinating people's choices, right? So um, if you want to know that the, the beer you're about to buy is is an acceptable choice, and if you're, say, you know, a young man uh, standing at a bar around lots of other young people, you want to be able to know that, then it's important that you know that those other people understand that the beer you're buying has a certain uh, cachet, or whatever it is. In other words... Advertising, as it's traditionally worked, is um, it's, uh, it's in academics called they call it a rational ritual, right? It's a, a, a public-facing statement that everybody can see, that everybody else can see, right? So it's not just important that I see that ad for, for that beer. It, what's important is that I know that other people can see it, and and that's what happens when you have kind of TV advertising only on a few channels, and you have billboards and so on, and and newspapers. When you move to a world where Advertising is much more personalised, um, much more fragmented. Many more channels in in every across every media. You don't know who's going, and and the, and the, the ads are increasingly personalised towards you. Then you don't know who else is it. Then actually, you have a problem as a brand. Brands are only just just realising this, but they lose some of their cultural cachet because when I see the ad, I don't know that other people can see it. 
So what a brand like John Lewis has done is double down on, on in a sense, the old-fashioned way, but it's just as relevant now as it was then, which is to say, it's actually really important that everybody sees this and everybody else knows that everybody else is seeing it. So, the, so the, the, the Christmas advert thing is a kind of deep nostalgia. It's a nostalgia for a moment at which, because we didn't have uh, the internet and plethora of channels and targeted advertising, that advertising was like the Morecambe and Wise show. It was something which we all yeah. consumed together and, we could, and that's what's going on. We it, like to imagine that the whole country is watching this advert and the whole country is collectively going, I'll get mint pies from Marks and Spencers because they've somehow touched the national mood. Yeah, I mean, it has, it's, it's worked pretty well for John Lewis. Um, but the, the, the other thing it brings to mind is the role of the BBC here because the, the bodyguard was, was a, a sort of massive, um, and it's very surprising to them, the, 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 this, the extent to which it was a hit. It had sort of absolutely huge viewing figures. And it's not that great, actually, you know, like there's all sorts of kind of problems with it. But it was just a show that, that captured the national imagination at a moment. And undoubtedly, a big part of the fun of it was knowing that everybody else was into it at the same time. Right. Right. Um, so it wasn't just about my relationship with it. It was about me knowing that I'm part of a, a, a collective experience here. So I think there is still a role and, and a kind of hunger for those, those collective experiences. It is time for us to come together as one united people. We believe in a union, not just between the nations of the United Kingdom, but between all of our citizens, every one of us. For the many not the few. So that, that takes me on to suggest a kind of meta-narrative for thinking about the world that we describe in these polarised conversations that we have, uh, uh, Ian. And that is... So I, I'm writing a, a book. It may never surface because um, I, I made the mistake of, want, of writing my first book as a theory of everything. Um, actually, if you write your first book you should probably write a history of Victorian fireplaces or something <laughs> yeah. very specific, which you can get your head around and you can read the top 20 books and summarise them. But, but nevertheless, at the heart of this, there is a core thesis, and I want to share it with you. So what I argue, and it's based upon theories from anthropology and psychology and even sociology, is that it's, it, it's useful to think about the idea that human beings are fundamentally motivated by, by three sets of things, three core kind of ideas and uh, you can describe these ideas in different ways, cluster them in different ways, but they're basically these. The first idea is authority. So we are motivated by authority. We're motivated by leadership, by strategy, by regulations and rules and expertise and all the things where there is some kind of hierarchy. Yeah. Secondly, what you might define as individualism or autonomy, which is we're motivated by our sense of what it is we want to achieve in the world, of our own personal growth and development. And you can relate to that notions of kind of choice and consumerism and markets and competition and to a certain extent creativity, entrepreneurialism, that's all in that kind of space. And then thirdly, solidarity, as I call it, which is the, the stuff that is about belonging and tribe and values, uh, and to a certain extent, kind of affect, as sociologists would, would describe it. 
Um, and there's a, by the way, there's a fourth kind of way of thinking about the world, which is fatalism. So those three are all ways of saying, well, this is how we make change in the world. We make it by authority. We make it through pursuing our own self-interest. We make it because we all share some values. And belong. There's a fourth view that says, actually, the world is kind of completely random and you can't achieve anything at all. Now, in the book, I, I, I try to argue that these fundamental human kind of motivations, ways of seeing the world evolved in us from the very beginning, and they have been part of our lives. And there have been long periods of time in human history where we've been kind of dominated by one way of, of, of thinking. Um, so, for example, you know, the human race, until we get to, uh, till we start settling in, in particular places that we are farming, is entirely solidaristic. Hunter-gatherer groups, there's no hierarchy, there's no possessions, there's no accumulation. It's an entirely kind of flat group, all based on the kind of bonds in the group. You then move into a long period of hierarchy, which starts with... The you know when we the kind of agrarian time people start to settle, you get the emergence of larger communities, and that period, the hierarchical period, really goes all the way through to we get to the Enlightenment and the and then the Industrial Revolution. You then enter enter this period of individualism and the domination of individualism. That's going to grant sweep. Now, the moment we're in, I want to argue is this: that what what is sometimes referred to near, as neoliberalism, what what that represents. It is the moment in the kind of 1970s and 80s, the emergence of that as a way of thinking, also a way of kind of acting. At its heart, neoliberalism is a compromise between hierarchy and individualism. So what neoliberalism says is that the role of government, the hierarchy, is to maximise the space for markets, individualism. And the champions of neoliberalism, whether they're politicians or global financiers, don't care about solidarity. They don't care about solidarity in any sense. They don't care about equality, that side of solidarity. They don't care about belonging and nationhood, anything like that. You know, the world is flat, right? What, you, what then grows out of this, and I've nearly finished, what <laughs> grows out of this is a solidarity yearning, right? A, a solidarity deficit and a solidarity yearning. So what happens is that inequality grows, and people feel the things that they care about, you know, nationhood and belonging and their tribe, these things lose salience, they lose agency, so that takes us to where we are right now. So my view of what's going on in the world right now is this, that that solidarity deficit, that solidarity yearning, there's a left account of that. And the left account of that solidarity yearning is it's because of inequality and because of the failure to kind of recognize the identity of certain groups, left identity politics, right? That, that's the left's explanation for our yearning. The right, or the, you know, the populist right, if you might want, have got their own account. And their account is, no, this is a yearning for, for tribe, for belonging, for nationhood. A yearning to say, no, actually, my group is better. My nation is better. Even my colour is better. And so what you've got in politics right now is a furious row between the left and the right, who are, in a sense, diagnosing the same thing, which is the way in which neoliberalism has created this yearning for solidarity. And they are fighting it out. And in a sense, what's missing is the ability to recognize that in a sense that th these are two sides of the same thing. And actually what is going on is while this fight is taking place between the kind of left solidarity and right solidarity, neoliberalism continues. So actually real power in the world continues to be a stitch up between government and big corporations and indeed in some ways an even bigger stitch up between governments and corporations, but now totally delegitimized. So everybody hates it. Everybody hates government. Every hate, everyone hates big business. But it continues to make the weather because instead of being able to find a new way of combining individualism, solidarity and hierarchy, as we did in the years after the Second World War, I'd argue, we've got this completely dysfunctional politics. So that's, that's my account of the world. So what that means to me is that somehow we've got to 
find ways of having a conversation which unites these different forms of solidaristic learning and see and see where and th- and this is where you get to your ideas of it and what what the, the, you know that what's what's religion taken away from us what has nation ta- what has the kind of loss of national sovereignty taken we have to recognize these yearnings and if we don't i, I don't see a way forward there's so much to 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 think about there um so i'm just going to kind of take off a, a part of it um which is about nationhood and religion but let's let's just focus on nationhood for a minute it, it seems to me and i think i've said this before that the left's discomfort with patriotism is one of its biggest problems, one of, one of its biggest failings. And actually, when the left has succeeded uh, in this country under Attlee or under Blair, one of the common threads there was a very strong sense of patriotism, right? That was kind of central to, to both of their, their, their identities and their, and their kind of their pitches to, to, to the nation. And when when the left the left is not naturally you know because it associates uh, patriotism with with nationalism with authoritarianism and imperialism and, and and so on and so forth, but if you if you kind of abdicate you know your right to say I'm a patriot and I believe I believe in this country, then you, you leave the the field open to the right, and and more than that, you. You fail to answer what you're describing as the yearning for for solidarity, because that yearning for solidarity is not just it's not just economic. This is the problem with like analysing everything through the lens of yep, inequality, right? Uh, it's much more more cultural, therefore more kind of more deep deeply felt, and it's to do with our stories and our myths and uh, 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 about society and so on. And I think what what patriotism does at, at, at its best is similar to, to to what religion can do, which is that it gives everybody a sense of uh, a stake uh, in a society. I mean, you know, we talk about universal basic income, which is kind of one of the left's answers to, to, to what's going on. But patriotism is kind of universal basic self-esteem because it says everybody, you know, no matter what you're doing, no matter how rich or poor you are, uh, whatever job you do, whatever sexuality you are, whatever gender you are, um, you are a, 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 belo- you belong to this country, and you you care about this country as as, as much as anyone else. We're all in this together. Mm. You know, it could actually resonate instead of just being a kind of cheap cheap uh, uh, political campaigning phrase. So we, we've run out of time, but I completely agree with you that one of the left's problems is that it it focuses on solidarity far too much merely in eco- economistic terms. You know, I'm not underestimating the importance of inequality, and I'm certainly, I hope, not underestimating the scale of of poverty which exists in a country like this, which is which is shocking given how affluent we are as a country. But but nevertheless, people's sense of yearning and loss is not only economic. It it does relate precisely to this sense of shared values, shared identity, shared destiny, actually. And so I think something we should return to in I think you know we, you and I would agree and actually we're not alone in this you know the recent you know Francis Fukuyama's book Identity I'm sure in her book on political tribes they, there's a recognition that progressives have got to have an account of nation of, of nationhood because otherwise exactly as you say the, the ground is being left entirely to to the kind of Trumps and Boris Johnsons of this world I think we've ended up to about common culture and in these programs we talk about polarization and we'll return to polarization great difference but it isn't what's going on in our society isn't just about polarization it's also about the lack of a common culture and how it is progressives can talk about the need for a common culture is i think a really important question that's it for this episode of polarized 
We'll be back again in two weeks' time. We have a couple of really interesting episodes coming up. We're going to be talking about two uh, very controversial and, and, and polarising subjects, one, one about gender identity, uh, and, and we'll also be talking about the, the, the free speech, uh, free speech on campus, etc. issue. Um, so if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating or review in your podcast app. Polarised was presented by Ian Leslie and by Matthew Taylor. The producer was James Shield. We were brought to you by the RSA.